You are now listening to Theology Applied, a podcast of Eternal City Church, where theology walks the pavement. Today you'll be hearing once again from Timothy Brendel as he opens up the book of the minor prophet Jonah. You may be surprised at how much redemptive historical significance there is in this short four-chapter story. Tim, thank you once again for coming to Theology Applied, part two. And brother, I'm so excited to get into this story of Jonah and the gospel with you, especially because this is your area of study. Yo, man, I love diving into the word with you and especially being thrown in or hurled in or cast in to the, the depths of the riches of the glory of Christ and all of scripture, including Jonah in particular today. So thanks, Chris. What a, what a joy to, to a fellowship with you over the word. Love it, man. Thank you. Hey, brother, before we start, I want to read a quote from Ian Duguid, um, who's a professor there at Westminster and theologian author, because I think there might be some who don't know what redemptive historical hermeneutic is. And though we're not specifically focusing on that, we're going to approach Jonah with a redemptive historical hermeneutic. So Ian says, the Old Testament is not primarily a book about ancient history or culture, though it contains many things that are historical and that describe ancient cultures. Centrally, the Old Testament is a book about Christ, and more specifically, about his sufferings and the glories that will follow. That is, it is a book about the promise of a coming Messiah, through whose suffering God will establish his glorious eternal kingdom. Uh, what would you add to that for those who don't yet know what redemptive historical hermeneutic is? I would just totally amen it. And um, I'm, I'm pretty sure in that context, Chris, Ian Duguid is coming from Luke 24 based on Jesus's own understanding of the Old Testament. And as we discussed in our last um, episode on, on a redemptive historical understanding of David and Goliath. This is the way that the second person of the Trinity, the God man, Jesus Christ understands the old Testament as being about him and his salvation. And so therefore we should follow, um, suit and, and interpret the Bible the way he does. The, the only other thing I'd add to it is we're going to see in Jonah today that it, it, it appears that Jonah itself is interpreted in light of God's one plan of redemption in the way that Jonah is going to use um, the flood and the Exodus episodes, uh, historical events, but that have enough similarity uh, to draw out some of those themes in, in repeating uh, 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 re, uh, recapitulations, uh, repeating um, uh, ideas in terms of the flood waters and, and being thrown into the deep seas. Um, in, in plunging into death and being rescued up out as a resurrection. But then also the way that Jonah will use the Psalms um, and then the way that the Lord Jesus Christ will use Jonah and the other gospel writers will even uh, describe and in, in write Jesus's um, miracle on the lake or the Sea of Galilee and pattern it after Jonah. Um, and that's because God, the orchestrator of all history, is actually working in redemptive history and causing his son, the greater Jonah, to hush and calm the stormy seas and save his disciples from the waters of death um, in a way that, that greatly um, par- parallels, but even contrasts the story of Jonah. And so I would just, go, I w- the only thing I'd add is that 
this isn't a, a hermeneutic where we're intending to oppose on the Bible. We're not trying to um, um, force Scripture to, to be read and understood in this way. But we think this is the way Scripture is interpreting itself. Right. So. Yeah. And what, what a great rule to interpret the Bible. Let the Bible interpret itself. And if Jesus said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, you know, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. So clearly he had a redemptive historical hermeneutic, though he wouldn't have called it that. <laughs> Brother, um, I, that's well said. Thanks for that. So you, really helpful opening, Chris. Excellent. So brother, let's jump in. Tell us, uh, I know we can't flush out everything, but let's, let's dig into Jonah and, and the fish and how this pictures the gospel. Uh, I don't know if you want to start in chapter one or you want to start with water uh, symbolizing judgment, how, however you want to jump off, go for it. Thanks, Chris. I think what really helps us understand Jonah as a book is to see uh, who Jonah is in the book of in, in the book of Jonah. Jonah is a prophet. He's mentioned in the book of Second Kings. He's a real historical figure. But as a prophet, like a priest and a king, uh, the 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 anointed offices, Jonah is a representative figure. He represents God to the people in terms of speaking the word. Jesus um, talks about the preaching of Jonah. If the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah, uh, something greater than Jonah is here, talking about his preaching ministry, and therefore you should repent. Um, How much more should you repent? And so understanding Jonah as a prophet is very important because as a representative figure, he's a picture of Israel. He's a representative of Israel, uh, and therefore, Jonah is a microcosm or a mini picture of, uh, uh, of what Israel was supposed to be in their calling to the nations as a kingdom of priests. Israel was meant to proclaim the Lord's word, his salvation, his judgment, uh, his truth, his law to the surrounding Gentiles, as we see in verses like Deuteronomy 4, 6. Isaiah talks about how Israel was called to be a witness uh, to the nations. Um, But does Jonah delight in this prophetic calling that he has, especially to go and proclaim uh, judgment to the nations, to, to, to uh, the Ninevite city in, in Assyria, Assyria? No, he refuses to obey the Lord. And therefore, he is a picture of Israel's disobedience Israel's spiritual pride to be a witness, to be a light to the nations. Um, and, and when Jonah was prophesying in, in, in the context of second Kings, um, it was a time of great prosperity. Uh, and it was also a time of great disobedience and idolatry, uh, as we can tell from the context. Um, and in particular, um, just to point our readers to it, uh, this is Second Kings fourteen twenty five. You can go and see the historical setting for when Jonah prophesied. But the reason we need to start with that is because Jonah, as a picture of Israel, he doesn't just uh, show us what Israel's like in his disobedience, but also in being thrown into the waters of death, which is depicted as an exile. 
So what happens to Jonah in the book of Jonah is a picture and a preview of what's about to happen to Israel in being thrown into exile, being cast away from the Lord. But then Jonah in his resurrection, in his being rescued out of the waters of death, is a picture of restoration out of exile. And this brings us right to the, to, to the feet of Jesus. Because Jesus, as the greater Jonah prophet, the obedient prophet to the nations, he, as the representative of his people, he will be exiled on the cross in death. He will be judged for us, not because of his disobedience, because of ours, uh, and and spend uh, three days and three nights, just as Jonah in the belly of the fish, as you alluded to in Matthew, Matthew 12, be resurrected and bring us into new resurrection life through him and actually enable us and equip us to be faithful, uh, proclaimers of, of, of the gospel in his mission uh, to the nations. So there's a few really helpful clues in Jonah that, that interact with the book of Hosea. Now, this is important, Chris, because Jonah and Hosea are a part of what we call the book of the Twelve. In our English Bible, um, we have the minor prophets. In the Hebrew Bible, the book of the 12, uh, we, we understand that they were written um, in time, inspired by the Lord through his prophets like Hosea and Obadiah and Amos and, and Joel and, and Jonah and, and the other um, minor prophets. But they, they were completed and edited by an inspired editor who put them together as a book, just as the Psalms were compiling of all these songs um, put together by an inspired editor to fit together as a whole. And so Hosea, he uses these same words for being driven out or exiled of God's presence in Hosea 9.15, which we find in Jonah chapter 2, verse 4, where Jonah says, I'm driven out, I'm cast out from your sight. This is the same word from Genesis 3.24, when Adam, because of his disobedience, is cast out, he's exiled from the presence of God, which we understand as a temple or a sanctuary where God dwelt with his people. So Jonah in being cast away from God's sight is compared to the fact that Israel will experience this in exile. Along with that, Jonah is swallowed up by this beast of death, this fish. He's swallowed up in death. That same word is used in Hosea 8.8 for Israel being swallowed up in exile. Lastly, Jonah will be in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Well, Hosea 6.2 talks about God restoring Israel after three days. And so these grammatical clues help us link Jonah with Israel. Israel and his experience in being plunged into the waters of death, pattern after the flood and the exodus, shows even though God has brought his people out of Egypt in salvation, their disobedience and sin, it's sort of like a reversal, a decreation, a going backward, and now they're being plunged into judgment, just as the Egyptians were, but God will show himself faithful. He'll raise his people up out of uh, the death of exile, and he does that through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think that's the best way to preface um, the whole book and in, in, in where we're going today, um, Brother Chris. Anything to add or, or, or unpack uh, about that? Yeah, the only thing I would want to maybe flush out a tiny bit is you referenced several times the water judgment of God. 
And there is many times in the whole Bible, not just the, the first couple books, um, you want to flush out water judgment as a symbol? Absolutely. And I love how you keep saying flush, flush out. That's quite intentional. Um, and so what's very interesting is at the flood in Genesis 6 through 9, this word for the deep seas, the tohom, um, the, 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 the depths burst forth upon the wicked, both from under the earth and then as the Lord pours out rain. Uh, and so the wicked are destroyed by what, what I call, uh, following Meredith Klein, um, the waters of judgment. Uh, this same word for the deep seas is also found in Exodus 15 because Pharaoh and the Egyptians are, are, are hurled and cast into the Tehom, into the deep seas, into the, into the waters of death as they are judged while God's people pass through safely on dry ground. Um, actually, Jonah alludes to this when he's running from the Lord and he's on the boat and the Gentile sailors ask him, who is he? He alludes back to the fact that he's the God who is the creator and the recreator who worked the Exodus. He says, I am a Hebrew. This is one nine. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry ground, the dry land. Same word for Moses and the Israelites passing through the waters of death on dry ground. Well, that word's going to reappear when Jonah's cast, when, when he's vomited out of this beast of death, out of this fish, out of the deep seas onto dry ground. Um, and so this idea where God saves his people through the waters of death, first Noah and those in the ark with him, his family, uh, his three sons and, 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 and their wives and his wife. And then at the, uh, at the Exodus, it becomes a pattern and it becomes um, a, a background for Jonah because lo and behold, he's thrown into the deep seas. He's thrown into the Tahome, we find in, in, in the book of Jonah. And he descends into the waters of death. But what's crazy about Jonah is he's likened to an Egyptian, in particular in uh, Jonah chapter 2, verse 3, he says, you cast me into the deep, there's our word, the deep seas, into the heart of the seas. And that phrase, into the heart of the seas, is found verbatim in the book of Exodus. Um, we, we see that in Exodus uh, 15, verse 5. And so um, the, uh, the Jonah, he's now being compared to an Egyptian. Why? Because Israel has become Egyptian-like. They've become Gentile-like. They've become pagan in their pride and in their disobedience and their idolatry. And so um, the, the flood and the exodus are very important backgrounds, Brother Chris. And as you said, it isn't just in those parts of the Bible. The New Testament will pick up with that, with Jesus's miracle in particular on the lake or the Sea of Galilee. And, and, and I want to argue that Jesus rescuing his disciples from the, the waters of death on the Lake of Galilee is meant to be a picture of the fact that he rescues us, not from the lake of the waters of judgment, but from the lake of fire. Hmm. Um, and, and he does so by, by taking judgment on himself. So we kind of jumped to the end, right to Revelation there, um, but hopefully that provides some broad brushstrokes for yeah. our listeners. Thinking of Revelation, what do you make of the, there will be no more sea? 
the, uh, no more judgment, no more chaos, no more mystery of death out there in the deep. I think that's exactly right, Chris. I think that's got to be it um, because there's just so many references to uh, the, the, the stormy seas and the vast, great, large, uh, you know, huge um, waters as being those things which represent the judgment of God. You know, sometimes waters are used more positively, um, but I think that's why. Revelation says there will be no more seas. Um, you know, I was just reading Psalm 32 yesterday in, in, in David after he confesses his sin. You know, he, he, he really urges God's people to confess their sin and repent. Um, he says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Because surely in the rush of great waters, in the, wa- in the flood waters, they shall not reach him. Uh, and that word is used in Isaiah 54 and in Nahum 1.8 um, for representative of God's flood of anger, his flood of wrath. So yeah, brother, I, I think uh, that's it. And Gerhardus Voss makes that same point in his book, Biblical Theology, Old and New Testaments, um, that, the re- that the book of Revelation is picking up on the water judgment language for eternal judgment by calling it a lake of fire. Um, It's interesting that Paul um, talks about in Romans 10, Jesus descended into the abyss. Well, this Greek word abusos, where we get the word abyss, is actually the translation in the Greek Old Testament for the word to home, the deep seas. And so you see the grave imagery. And as we'll see in Jonah 2, those are the Psalms that Jonah starts quoting from alluding to uh, in the Psalter, uh, it's the Psalms that describe suffering and death as an affliction as a watery grave. It's hmm. good, man. All right. So before we jump into chapter two, uh, we had spoken previously about this theology applied. So let's make some brief applications here uh, for the listeners. H- how can this be applied to their life? Uh, We don't want to say, all right, Jonah didn't listen to God. He was disobedient. So you just do the reverse. And that's the moral of the story. Correct. Um, That would not be super helpful, Chris, if we only gave imperatives, the do's and don'ts. We can get to the imperatives, but like Paul, let's start with some indicatives, some things that God has done uh, through the greater Jonah, Jesus Christ. But as a way of exposing sin, I I think we can can see... um, what Jonah does and how he acts as a way uh, for ourselves and our listeners uh, to examine their hearts. And so notice that Jonah runs from or flees from the face or the presence of the Lord. That's mentioned twice in verse three, and it's mentioned again in verse 10. And so this idea of the face of the Lord, the presence of the Lord really brings into view, Chris, all of life is meant to be lived in the presence of God, aware and conscience of the face of God. And therefore, we can tell from Jonah chapter 1, sin is a foolish, deceitful attempt to attempt to live away from and, and hiding from the presence of the Lord. Jonah 
gets found out. You can't run from God. So this is very helpful for teaching kids. You know, you can't hide uh, from the Lord. Um, uh, I would also say the, the, the more you try to run from God, the closer and closer you are to hell. And the reason I get that is from another repeated word in the book of Jonah is this word to, to go down or to descend. It's used over and over again. And so Jonah, like um, most Hebrew um, um, biblical literature uses repetition to get our attention. So Jonah goes down to Joppa, and then he goes down into the ship. Verse 3, that word is used twice in the Hebrew. Then he goes down to the bottom of the ship to try to go to sleep. I mean, Chris, I don't know about you, man, but in my unsaved days, I used to try to get bent, smoke weed, drink, um, pop pills, do drugs, indulge in sin. Um, and even as a Christian in my, in my foolishness have attempted to uh, try to forget God by numbing my conscience with sin. Uh, uh, praise God, not in those same ways, but still Jonah tries to go so far from God. He's now down at the very bottom of the ship and he goes down even further because in Jonah two, six, he goes down to the very bottom of the deep seas. And so it brings into view the fact, you know, if you're turning from the Lord into sin and you're running from God and you're trying to hide from his face, this downward spiral brings you deeper and deeper and deeper and farther and farther and farther from the Lord and closer and closer to the grave and hell. And praise God that the love of Christ gets so deep, it can get all the way down, uh, as, as we'll see in Jonah in his resurrection, um, and, and through our union with Christ to raise us up out of being dead in sins. And so um, there, there's, there's more applications that can be found out, uh, that, that, can, that can be discussed, um, uh, uh, Brother Chris, but I wondered if you want to unpack any of those. Um, man, that's so helpful. I think that we could say that the psalmist says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And often we try to get that, but we get it by going into death. And then it goes deeper into death, as you've just described. When really God tells us, look, what you're looking for is in my presence. So come to me and I will give you satisfaction. That's right, bro. And, you know, the father clothes us in the righteousness of his son so that we're uh, presentable and acceptable and well-pleasing before his face, before his presence. Um, and we can delight in him. The, the, the shame of our sin is removed. Our, 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 our vile uh, defilement is purified. We're clothed in Christ. And yes, now we can come into his presence. One quick thing, Chris, that's really striking about Jonah 1 is it's, there's a lot of irony in Jonah. Jonah is so mad that God has called him to go and preach to the Gentiles because he knows God's going to save. He knows God's merciful, as we find out in Jonah, Jonah 4. Lord, the reason I didn't go is because I knew you're so merciful. Well, even in Jonah trying to run from God and getting on the ship with Gentile sailors, the Gentile sailors get saved. <laughs> They become Israelites. They become worshipers. And these Gentile uh, sailors, they begin to call on the name of the Lord. Uh, they begin to quote the Psalms in verse in Jonah 1.14. They call on the name of the Lord and they, they, they make reference to Psalm 115.3. Lord, you are the one uh, who does whatever you please. 
um, uh, uh, alluding to Psalm 115.3. And so while Jonah should have been an example and a picture for the Gentiles on how to worship God, the Lord flips it up. He switches it. The Gentiles are actually an example for Jonah. And so as they call in the name of the Lord and offer up vows and in, 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 uh, vows of in uh, sacrifices of worship, Jonah will end up doing that in Jonah too. So he actually ends up following the Gentiles. So there's some irony there. And I think what we can learn from that, Chris, the Lord doesn't need us, man. Jonah and the Israelites at this time, and they took mad pride in their ethnic heritage. And Chris, we see cats going astray into the Hebrew Israelite false teaching as if um, any kind of ethnic identity has any um, uh, uh, ultimate spiritual value. Yes, there were much benefits for being Israelites, as Paul says in Romans 9 and in Romans 2, uh, at the beginning of Romans 3, rather. But the, all of these benefits were that they had the scriptures and they had the promises of God that ultimately the Lord doesn't need us. Uh, and he can, he can raise up rocks from the dust to worship him and even low down stinking rotten dirty gentile sailors yeah. um who who end up worshiping the lord um and and so this really brings us into view brings into view the fact that jonah falls asleep on a boat with fearful sailors with the winds and the waves and the in the seas crashing upon the boat it's such a striking parallel to Jesus's miracles in the gospel. Jesus's miracle in the gospels. In fact, it's as if Matthew and Mark and Luke have the Greek Old Testament of Jonah next to them as they're writing it, because there's so many grammatical, uh, lexical parallels, so many uh, 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 similar, so many of the same words and phrases are found there. And so we, we see a contrast. Yes, Chris, we talked about David crushing the head of Goliath as an example of, uh, as a picture of Christ. But with Jonah, we have an anti, you know, we, we, we have a, uh, there's much, yeah, there's much reversal because Christ, he arises from sleep as the fearful sailors on the boat awaken him, his disciples. Um, but the, the problem is not that Jesus has sinned, and that's why the waters of death have fallen upon them, like it is with Jonah. Jesus speaks his word, his all-powerful word, hushes the winds and the waves. And then we find in the, in the Gospels, they're on dry ground safely. Essentially, he's showing, I'm the greater Jonah, I'm the greater Moses, the greater Noah. I'm Yahweh in the flesh who rescues my people from the waters of death. Good. Yeah, and you, you reference Moses there because of the staff and the splitting of the Red Sea. Moses, in a sense, right. spoke to the, to the sea and it obeyed. That's right. Yeah. You're right. And it's crazy because Jonah's name means dove. And that was very important. That same word is found in the flood narrative when um, the Lord sends a dove with, with all of branches to, to give evidence for Noah that dry ground has, has emerged and, and then Noah's brought safely on dry ground. So yeah, the picture is about Christ rescuing his people. Uh, I'm sorry, I said the waters of judgment from, from the lake of fire symbolized by the waters of death. Yes. So very good, it's bro. so remarkable how the, the one author of scripture has put so many, if you will, links. You know, you click on this link and you're like, wow, look at this parallel over here and over here and over here. But then it all comes 
into Christ and, and it finds its fulfillment there. And, and we're not reading this into the text. Like it's there as you've been describing. Exactly, brother. Amen. All right. Do you, do you want to move on to uh, more of the, the psalm? Absolutely. Let's do that. Right. And so connecting from Jonah 1 to Jonah 2, it's very interesting that Jonah understands he's guilty for running from the Lord. And, it, and, and you know, I think of the proverb uh, where the, the lot is cast into the lap, uh, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You know, so the Gentile sailors cast lots to see what's the reason why there's these stormy seas. Um, and it, the lot falls to Jonah and Jonah says, yep, it's me. Throw me overboard, throw me into the deep seas. And then the storm uh, will be, will be quenched. And he's right. And so it's very clear that the, the storm and uh, the waves uh, and the stormy seas are a picture of, of God's wrath. That's very important. Jonah's thrown into the wrath of God, literally. Uh, and when he's swallowed by this huge fish, this huge fish uh, represents a beast of death. It was a literal fish. It's the same word that we find in Genesis 1.28 for the creatures that Adam was given dominion over. And it's very interesting that those beasts are much, very much connected to the serpent. Um, and, and, and we've talked before, even our, in our last episode, Chris, how the dragon and the sea monster, uh, and uh, there, there's a lot of connection there. So Jonah swallowed up by this beast of death it really is a picture of exile as, as we compared it with, with Hosea's use of this word uh, to, to be swallowed up, Hosea 8.8. 8. Also, Exodus 15.12 talks about the Egyptians being swallowed up by the waters. And Psalm 69.16 uses this imagery where David talks about being swallowed up uh, by, by the waters of death. And so Jonah, when he's down in the, into the belly of the fish, What's very interesting is the gender of the fish goes in the Hebrew from it being a male fish to a female fish. And it's not because the Lord is endorsing transgenderism. Make sure you hear that nice and clearly. Right. out there. Yeah. That's right. It's because the fish is pregnant. And this is clear because Joan goes into the belly or literally in the Hebrew into the womb of the fish. The two words that are used for the belly and the womb respectively are both used for the matriarchs, uh, namely the, the wives of the patriarchs, um, you know, uh, Abraham with Sarah and Isaac with Rebecca and Jacob with Rachel, their womb um, and, and, and their belly, these, both of these words, they're, they're, they're synonymous. And so Jonah, because he's going to be spit up uh, out onto dry land into onto resurrection life, I think it, it's a very interesting detail, uh, which it, it could be um, that, that it's meant to depict a pregnant a mama fish <laughs> um, to, 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 to point to the fact that Jonah's going to have a, a new birth or, or a resurrection. But Jonah starts going on a tangent as he cries out to the Lord from the belly of the fish, and he starts quoting or alluding about 20 psalms is, is what I've counted. Um, these are either direct 
quotations um, uh, like we uh, find in um, verse three, all your waves and your billows passed over me. We find in Psalm uh, chapter 42, verse seven, um, uh, or there are various allusions or references where, where it's a phrase here, a phrase there, or a handful of words that are only found here and in that Psalm. And so most of these Psalms, again, are those which depict suffering and exile as a watery grave. And so even though Jonah is sinful, he's a prophet. And so it makes sense. The Psalms are on the lips of the prophet. And so this is progressive revelation, Chris. It's when the Lord use earlier part, uses earlier parts of scripture and unpacks them for later use in redemptive history. And so Jonah gets resurrected uh, out of this, uh, this beast of death, and it's striking the way that the psalm of Jonah ends. Uh, Jonah 2.9, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Now listen to this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We find that phrase in Psalm 3.8 for David being rescued from death and the Lord um, giving him uh, resurrection, rescue. Uh, salvation belongs to our God, Revelation 7.10. And so in all three of these passages, Psalm 3.8, Jonah 2.9, Revelation 7.10, the context is resurrection worship. Mm being rescued from death in worshiping the Lord. And so again, Jonah, he lands on new creation dry ground in, in, in chapter 2, verse 10, just as Israel walked on new creation dry ground. And so it's a second exodus. It's pointing forward to a greater exodus. And Brother Chris, there's no coincidence that when Jesus is on the mountain of transfiguration, talking with Moses and Elijah, they are discussing his exodus, which he is about to accomplish in Jerusalem, Luke 9, 31. So the, 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 the point of the story is that Jesus Christ, the greater, exi- the, the greater Jonah, is exiled in our place, not into the waters of death, but into death itself, mm. under the wrath of God. Uh, buried in the abusos, the abyss, for three days. He calls it the sign of Jonah, and he's raised up to establish new creation and to proclaim good news to those who were far off, the Gentiles, us. We're, we're, we're like the Ninevites in the story in that regard. And so um, I want to move on to applications, Brother Chris. Let's do it. Um, yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Okay. Um, but but if, if you had a, something to unpack, that's fine with me. No, right no, there. That's good. That's good. Okay. So Jonah is an example for us. He quotes Psalms in the midst of his suffering. The Lord hears our prayers. But again, Chris, the redemptive historical hermeneutic is so helpful because yes, it's fine to make the direct link from Jonah to us. We can do that, but it becomes more powerful when the link runs through Christ. Can you think of any other prophets who in the midst of their suffering quoted psalms in their distress my god my god why have you forsaken me yeah there you go psalm 31 into your hands i commit my spirit you know i even argue in my thm thesis that when jesus is in the garden of gethsemane and he says my soul is very sorrowful even unto death he's 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 alluding to uh psalm 42 right there and so uh jesus the greater jonah 
quotes psalms. And it's interesting that Jesus, even though he's God, he, in, 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 in the psalms that he quotes, he puts himself in the first person of the prayer of the sufferer, doesn't he, Chris? Yeah, yeah. Because he's the suffering one. He's the lamenting one. He's the one being afflicted in our behalf. He's the one crying out to God, his father, showing perfect trust uh, in, in obedient dependence. And God answers. The father answers him by resurrecting him. And so Christ, he, uh, through, through our union with him, he enables us to pray the Psalms as prayers of faith and praise in the midst of our distress. Uh, and that's one way we're being conformed into the suffering of Christ. Paul talks about in Philippians 3, uh, 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 verse 10, I, I believe, where we're, we're, we're sharing in his suffering. We're being made like him in his death. And so we can cry out to the Lord in our desperation and praise God. We got a hundred, if you can't think of what to pray, we got 150 inspired prayers in the Psalter, not to mention all the other prayers in the Bible. Yeah, that's, that's such a helpful application point, brother. Um, I just finished journeying through the Psalms very recently. And yeah, just praying through them, praying through them, using it as your own language. Um, one thing I did want to maybe have you comment on yes. is Jesus in, in this redemptive or biblical theology, redemptive historical flow becomes the fulfillment of Israel as well. So Jonah represents Israel in this story uh, being exiled, but Jesus is the fulfillment of, of Israel. And then we become, right, Abraham's children by faith. Um, do you want to comment on that? Yes, I'm glad you're helping us to be clear on that. That's very important, Chris. Um, Jesus is true Israel. Jesus is called Israel Literally, in Psalm 40, uh, Isaiah 49, the father is talking to his anointed servant, and, and he calls him Israel. And then Matthew uh, alludes to Jesus as Israel. In Matthew chapter 2, uh, this is uh, verse 15. Uh, and they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea 11.1. 1. Now, what's very interesting is that this is quoting part B of, this, of Hosea 11.1, 1, but part A of verse 1 is, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. And so we don't believe that the New Testament writers were ripping the Old Testament passages out of context. When they quote a passage or allude to a passage, they have in mind that context. So in that context, who is God's son? It's Israel. In Jesus, he's not only the divine uh, son of God and his deity, he is that, the second person of the Trinity, but he becomes a man to become the obedient son, Israel, doesn't he? And it's interesting that Israel is called God's firstborn son in Exodus 4. Israel is my firstborn son. Let him go. And there's no coincidence that um, God kills the, the firstborn of Egypt. And the reason he rescues and saves the Israelites uh, from their firstborn son dying is because of the blood of the Passover lamb. Mm. 
And, and Jesus is that firstborn son, Passover lamb. And so, yes, Jesus is true Israel. But what's dope, Brother Chris, what's so amazing is Gentiles get grafted in, according to Romans 11, to the one tree. There's one tree. When Jesus calls himself the tr- true vine, Israel was called a vine in, in, in Jeremiah 2. I believe it's verse 22. When Jesus calls himself the true vine, he's saying, I'm the true Israel. And whoever is in me, whoever puts their faith in me is grafted in. Paul will even call the church the Israel of God at the end of Galatians. This is Galatians chapter 6, uh, verse uh, 15 and 16. For neither circumcision counts for anything, talking to the Judaizers, nor uncircumcision, but what circumcision pointed to, a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, namely upon the Israel of God. And so you hit the nail on the head and that's very important. And so, yes, Jonah is a picture of disobedient Israel, but that's why Jonah points forward to and shows the need of a greater Jonah, which Jesus calls himself something greater than Jonah is here, an obedient prophet, the one God promised in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through Moses that would arise like Moses. It's to him we must listen. Father quotes that at the transfiguration. So Jesus is the greater Jonah and yet through our union with him, we're, we're a part of the true uh, people of God that consists of Jews and Gentiles, but we're the true Israel. That's, that's very important, Chris. Good, man. Yeah, thank you. Um, any more application points you want to make before we move on to three? I think that the fact Jonah says salvation belongs to the Lord is very important for us as people who believe in the sovereignty of God's salvation, Chris. Mm, that's good. Humility comes from an understanding of God's sovereign grace and salvation. And so it appears that Jonah has been humbled and amazed by the Lord's salvation at the end of his psalm. And Jonah then obeys in in Jonah 3. Moving on to Jonah 3 now, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, just as it did in 1.1. Now it does again in in, in 3.1. And this time Jonah obeys. And Jonah himself, in the story, he is a picture of repentance and mercy, but he's meant to be, um, through his repentance and mercy, a vessel of repentance and mercy. And he is that to the Ninevites. As he goes and obeys and proclaims God's word, the Ninevites repent and receive God's mercy. Now, obviously, Jonah is a very imperfect picture of that because he becomes resentful about that. Um, But I, I think this notion of repentance and mercy, turning away from sin, Turning to the Lord to obey is, is, is very helpful in our text. But we have another Israelite Gentile reversal. And so the fact that salvation and, and repentance and mercy comes to the Ninevites, by the way, the Ninevites were some of the most gruesome, brutal, idolatrous um, people in the ancient Near Eastern world that surrounded Israel. And yet the Lord has mercy on them. And this is a preview, Brother Chris, Jonah chapter three, of what we'll see on a greater scale in the New Testament, won't we? Won't we? Namely, 
the proclamation of the good news of repentance and mercy to the Gentiles. And so Gentile salvation is not just in the New Testament. It's interesting that in Luke 24, 44 to 49, one of the things that Jesus says the Old Testament is all about are his sufferings and death and his resurrection and the proclamation of his gospel to all the nations, which we see as a preview of in in Jonah chapter 3. But there's another Israelite Gentile reversal because the Gentile king of Assyria, the Gentile Ninevite king, he repents as their leader, and he issues forth a proclamation of repentance to the whole land, including the animals. And Chris, that's big. Because in the Hebrew text, at times, you can't tell the difference between the humans and the beasts. And you know what? That just points to the beastly character of their sin. Just as we saw with Goliath, he's depicted as, a, as, a, as an animalistic serpent and beast because of his idolatry. That's how the Ninevites have become. Um, and yet the Lord has mercy upon them. But meanwhile, back in Israel, back in Judah, what's going on? The Israelite kings are living in decadent, self-centered idolatry. They're not repenting as a leader for the nation, uh, for the rest of the nation, Israel. And so again, we see this crazy reversal in it, in, in it's alluding, I think, to the fact that when Jesus comes, yes, all of Jesus's first disciples were Jews. So there are Jews that Christ saves, and there are Israelite believers in Christ in the early church, obviously. But a vast amount of Israelites would reject Messiah. Messiah. And so what do the disciples do? The apostles in the book of Acts, all right, y'all don't want this? We're going to the Gentiles. Yeah. So we see a nice preview of that in, in, in Jonah chapter three. Anything to depict more Take about that, brother? One where he came to his own and his own received him not. That's, that's right. did receive him. Yeah. So I, go. yeah, that's good, man. I, there's a lot there, brother. I, I can imagine somebody <laughs> who's skeptical of this hermeneutic saying like, man, you're reading a lot into this, Tim. <laughs> what would you say to them? Well, I'd say, have you been listening the last uh, 45 minutes, um, for one? And, you know, I, again, um, I think one of the best things to do is, um, you know, some, I think, Chris, you and I, we're comfortable reading things in the Old Testament and seeing their, their connections with Christ and the gospel and the church, even if the New Testament does not give a specific uh, reference of it. Um, um, however... Oftentimes there are specific references, and so I would read to them uh, Matthew twelve thirty eight and following. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, "Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you." But he answered them, "An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah." For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, Jesus doesn't stop with Jonah 1 and Jonah 2. He goes on to Jonah 3 and 4. Listen, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. And who's Jesus talking to? The Pharisees. Unbelieving Israelites. He's like, yo, these Gentiles. Listen to what he says. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Good. Yep. 
Yep. So yeah, that's a great, great argument, brother. And and it's right there. I mean, I think if you're just willing to be honest with the text, that's right. uh, Jesus himself said, this story is ultimately about me. And he's making application to unbelieving Israel right there in the in the gospel account. Amen, brother. Very, very important. One really interesting thing going on um, that that I think really uh, helps expose our sin, uh, brother Chris, in in the book of Jonah, in particular in chapter four. You know, we see Jonah. He references uh, the statement of the Lord's character um, in, in, in Jonah 4.2. That is why I, I quickly fled to Tarshish, because I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Um, it's interesting. He, he puts the relenting from disaster in there as well from Joel 2.13. More interplay between the minor prophets, what we call the book of the twelve. Uh, but Jonah has more mercy and compassion on this plant that the Lord provides as a hut or a booth, reminding uh, uh, the reader of, of the Israelites in the, in, the, in the arid wilderness desert that protects Jonah from the scorching sun. But then when the Lord sends a, a worm, uh, a creature, to strike this plant uh, and kill this plant, Jonah has more love and compassion for the plant than he does for the Ninevites. But what's very interesting is in the text, this plant uh, has uh, the same root for the word to vomit, uh, in which the fish vomited Jonah up. And so as you're reading this, in the Hebrew text, you get the sense that, wow, uh, the, the kikion, this, this, this plant, and this word for vomit as the fish vomits and, and spits Jonah up, um, this word here uh, in the Hebrew uh, that, that is the root of, of, of this word for, the, for, the, for this, this plant, it gets the sense, it, give, it reminds you of the vomiting, and it makes you wonder, is the Lord saying, Jonah, your character is pukey. Mm. I rescued you by vomiting you out of the fish of death. And so... Uh, my, my professor at Westminster, when we, when we went through Jonah in the Hebrew text, he calls it the pukey Jonah plant. Um, having more compassion and mercy uh, for, for, for your own comfort um, and, and for your own spiritual pride than, than on the nations. And so Christ is really the one, Brother Chris, who he convicts us of our complacency uh, as, as his missionaries, as his evangelists who are called to bring the gospel to our neighbors and to the surrounding nations. And he, he shows us, man, we prefer comfort and our own uh, self-righteousness at times over the salvation of others, just as Jonah loved the pukey Jonah plant more than he loved the Ninevites. But that's why we need Christ. Christ is called the faithful witness in Revelation 1.5. He's, he's the one who testifies about the Father and his salvation and his judgment, and he does that to the nations. He's, he's the true Israel faithful witness. But he calls his church now to be a faithful witness. He calls Antipas his faithful witness in Revelation 2.13. That same phrase that's used for Jesus in Revelation 1.5 is used for Antipas. And then as you get the sense in the rest 
of the book of Revelation, the church is called to bear witness and testify of God's salvation and judgment. And Christ is with his church. He's present with his church. And through our union with Christ by a spirit, he enables us. He's with us unto the end of the ages to make disciples of all the nations, right. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. So th- I think that's some helpful application for, for Jonah chapter three and four there, brother. Yeah, that's great, brother. And I think that we could say that, man, if there was hope for the Ninevites who were, uh, you know, I heard one account that they would stack the skulls of their enemies. You know, they were very Step. violent people. Uh, there's hope for anyone, you know, that's like, right. you know, wretched old hip hoppers like us or, you know, addicts, uh, any people group all over right. the globe, uh, including arrogant Americans, uh, there's hope. That's true. So we we would say that it's the it's God who saves. With That's with right. man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Yes. As you're describing here, uh, we can have confidence not in ourselves, or even in our apologetics. Though we would want right. to say, polish up your apologetics and your yes. witnessing skills, but it's the Lord who saves. And so we can be confident in him when we are giving a defense or going out offensively and witnessing to people or befriending and and sharing the good news. Good point, man, because what does Jonah do? He goes three days journey, by the way, alluding back to his three days in the belly of the fish, right? A three days journey into the city and he just stands up and preaches. I mean, he... He, he may have said more that, than what's in Jonah 3, verse 4. But what we have in the text, he said, Yo, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Right. <laughs> you know, we could tell from the rest of the book, I'm sure he didn't have this amazing, you know, really um, uh, eloquent delivery and, and, and presentation and um, slides and PowerPoints for his apologetic arguments on why the He just stood there preach what God told him to say, and the entire city repents. And so how much more as we go faithfully to preach God's word, uh, it's the word of God that has the power to save and and rescue sinners from the, from the beast. See the beast of death here under, under the water that Jonah is being thrown into from, from the, the, from the grave, from, from the, uh, the, the death of sin from enslavement to Satan and from the wrath of God, all, all ours in Christ. It's great, brother. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I do have one more point of application. I'd like to, to maybe explore for just a minute, but do you have any other ones? That was it, bro. Okay. Let's, let's very quickly talk about, um, have you encountered Dane Ortland's book, the heart of Christ gentle and lowly? Have you, have you messed with that yet? I have not, but it sounds amazing. What a great title. I recommend it. G- Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland, fantastic book. And he talks about how God is this merciful Lord. And when we turn to him, much like the prodigal son uh, story where, where the father runs, you know, he, the father is willing to be merciful if we will but turn to him. Like we will not find him with arms crossed, not willing to receive us. He is, in a sense, so merciful and so gracious that when we will turn to him, he will run to us and receive us and forgive us. And that doesn't inspire us to sin, but rather that gives us a greater love for him that causes us to want to obey. Oh, amen to that, man. So well said, brother. The riches of mercy. Romans 9 talks about the riches of God's mercy. Um, and yes, the, the, the more you understand the, the riches of God's mercy, the more you delight in his presence, as we had talked about earlier, brother. Um, and the more you want to run to your father, 
um, uh, every morning, you know, when you've sinned, when you're tempted to sin, um, um, in, in, in through, throughout our, our entire Christian walk, uh, living before the face of God. That's, that's dope, bro. Yeah. Well, thank you, man. You've really hit this Jonah story hard. It's four little chapters, but man, what a, what a story and what connection yeah. to, uh, so many themes running through the entire scripture. Praise God for his word, man. The Lord is good. Amen. Well, thanks again, brother. I appreciate you coming on again, and hopefully we'll get a chance to do another one. Absolutely. And brother Chris, I would ask um, our listeners if they want to hear more on how Jonah connects um, and even uh, hear some of this stuff in in song form, I would point them to a song called Water Judgment on the Unfolding uh, album. And then there's a chapter in the Unfolding book that that dives in uh, to these truths as well. So um, thank you so much, brother. TimothyBrindleMinistries.com. You can find those resources uh, or on Amazon, the Kindle version of the Unfolding. Yeah, and we'll put those links in the show notes and make it easy. Thank you, brother. All right, love you, bro. Appreciate it. Love you too, man. Grace and peace. peace.